0: Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. We are um, continuing in our study through the gospel of Mark. And the story that we're going to be walking through this morning, I think actually fits perfectly with what we're celebrating this morning as a church community. Julia reminded me last night, um, as we were watching Pitt football like blessed pit football. And a year ago, the very first lesson that we taught in kids church and the very first sermon that we had was from the book of Exodus. We walked through we spent like 19 weeks in the book of Ex- Exodus. And that first story was this story of Shifra and Puah, these two Hebrew midwives who stood up to Pharaoh and resisted his demand that they begin enacting an unjust policy throughout Egypt, murdering every Hebrew child. And today we see another story of a person walking into the very center of a powerful institution and quite literally overturning tables. And so it almost feels in some ways that we're having a very similar, if not the same conversation today that we had A year ago. About two years ago, in early fall of 2020, I was sitting on a park bench at Riverview Park. It's a park bench that my friend and mentor Wayne Younger and I have sat on many times together. It's a bench where the observatory is right behind you and you kind of look down the hill and you can see houses and you can see off into the distance. And I was meeting with Wayne because Julia and I, at that point in time, had reached the decision point where we were going to step away from Northway Christian Community, and we were going to start what is now Garden City. And for years, Wayne had functioned as a mentor to me. And he and his wife, Leanne, several years prior, had started a church in the Spring Garden neighborhood of Pittsburgh called um, Spring Garden neighborhood of the North Side called City View Church. And so sitting with Wayne, I was basically asking permission. I was basically sitting with him and saying, this is what we really believe we're supposed to do, but I'm not gonna do it if you don't think it's good. I'm not gonna do it unless you believe in it and support it. And in the midst of that conversation, one, Wayne was super excited. Apparently, Wayne had been harboring hopes for five or six years that I would do something like this, that Julie and I would step into an opportunity like this. But then we started talking about just the heart of God. And Wayne said something to me so simple, and yet it felt so profound to me. I don't know that I'd ever heard anybody kind of encapsulate the heart or mission of God quite this simply. And Wayne just said this to me. He said, God wants his kids to come home that that's the thing that God wants more than anything else, is that God wants his kids to come home. And I think if we're honest, we could acknowledge that the church in America has not always made it easy for God's kids to come home. That our LGBTQ neighbors oftentimes know that they're not welcome or that they're not going to be fully embraced as they are in various church communities. Same with our neighbors who believe that social justice is at the center of what it means to follow Jesus. And we also have neighbors who will tell us that you have to vote a particular way in order to be a follower of Jesus, and all of those things, all of those messages that get communicated, they don't make it easier for people to follow Jesus. They don't make it easier for God's kids to come home. They make it harder. But the modern church in America is not the first religious institution to make it hard for God's kids to come home. The same thing happened in Jesus' time. The Jewish temple was intended to be A temple for all people, a place of radical inclusion. But it wasn't, and so Jesus turned over tables. And that's the story that we're gonna be working through today. We're gonna start in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. There Mark writes, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, for context real quick, for weeks, Pastor Shaq and I have been talking about how Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. They have now arrived. This is the week that will eventually culminate with Jesus being arrested and put on trial and being crucified and then three days later resurrected. Jesus and his disciples have arrived in Jerusalem Jesus has entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Crowds of people lined the streets and put their cloaks and palm branches on the ground before him. And that scene plays out like a coronation, like a king returning to his own city to take his rightful place on the throne. And Mark tells us that the first place that Jesus and his disciples go upon finally arriving in Jerusalem is the temple that Jesus and his disciples go to the very center of Jewish, Jewish religious, political, economic, and cultural life on what Mark describes as almost this reconnaissance mission. They go, Jesus looks around, he takes it all in, and apparently because it's late in the day, he decides to just leave with his disciples to travel back out of Jerusalem to a village just on the outskirts of Jerusalem named Bethany, where he and his disciples will stay that last week of Jesus' life. And then in verse 12, the story continues this way. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. It's a strange scene. Just received on the surface, Jesus seems petulant. He's hungry. He wants to eat. This tree doesn't have fruit. And so he curses it. And I love that little line at the end, at least as a parent, where it says, and his disciples heard him say it. It's like that first time Julie and I heard our kids swear, and they were like, well, we heard you say it, and so we said it. Jesus' disciples hear him curse the fig tree. But this particular scene, it actually works on two levels. It communicates two different things. And I think this is one of those moments where it does us well to remember that Mark is writing his gospel at a historical point in time. Like there were women and men who received Mark's gospel 60, 70 years, 60, 70 AD. And they read it. And they had a particular cultural and historical context that we lack. They had a particular understanding of the Jewish scriptures that we lack honestly are oftentimes ignorant of. And so this story, Mark's original audience would have read it and thought, that's an interesting story, but they also would have heard language in it that would have pointed them to something much more significant that Mark is communicating. Because on another level, it's a clear indictment of the Jewish religious system, and in particular, the temple. In Old Testament stories, and this is the context that Mark's original audience would have had, in the Old Testament stories of the Garden of Eden, the Exodus, the wilderness journey, and the Promised Land, a leafy fig tree full of fruit is used by biblical authors to symbolize peace, security, and prosperity. But as the Old Testament progresses, the prophets begin to use the fig tree as a symbol of God's judgment against Israel in the temple. For example, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 8.13, he records God as saying this, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. The prophet's depiction of the fig tree is intended in Jeremiah to be received as God's denunciation of Israel's unjust and ungodly actions. Israel was once like a leafy fig tree full of fruit, but now it's like a fig tree with withered leaves and no fruit. What Mark is writing is what's known in Scripture as an enacted parable. It's an acted-out story that demonstrates a spiritual lesson. For Mark, the fig tree story symbolizes the Jewish temple. And even though the temple is busy with religious commerce and activity, even though it looks leafy and full of life, it's really, as Jesus will say in a few verses, a den of robbers. Mark wants his readers and us to understand this scene first and foremost as a parable of God's judgment against the temple. In verse 15, Mark continues. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. This is the part of the passage that we're likely familiar with. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, "Is it not written, "My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." Now, again, there are two separate and related things that are happening in these verses. We see Jesus acting in a particular way, and then we hear Jesus teaching in a particular way. And both demonstrate the ways in which the temple is like the fig tree that appears to be healthy and yet does not produce fruit. So first, to focus on Jesus' actions. Jesus drives the people who are buying and selling out of the temple courts, and he overturns the tables of the money changers and people selling doves. Mark's readers would know that when Jesus enters the temple that this place where he encounters all of these merchants, it's a place that's known as the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place in the temple where anyone who is not Jewish is allowed to enter and congregate. It's the first, outermost, and largest section of the temple. And my screen just went blank, I apologize. It's the place where all of the commercial activity that would happen in the temple that's actually necessary to support the functioning of the temple would occur. Many of us have probably heard this story taught in a way where we're left to assume that Jesus overturns all the tables because he's angry about the commercialism that is happening within the temple. I'm not sure that's actually what's going on here. Because... There would have had to have been commercial activity in the temple for it to function properly. People are traveling from all over the region to Jerusalem. It's not reasonable for people coming to offer sacrifices to be carrying with them doves and sheep. And so there are merchants set up there to sell those things to them. There's people coming from all different regions that use different types of currency. And there's only one type of currency that was allowed to be used inside of the temple. And so they would have had to exchange currency so they could buy and sell things in the temple. All of that was an understood component of life in the temple. Jesus is not overturning tables and driving people out because he's angry that there's buying and selling and exchanging going on. He drives people out and he turns over tables as a protest against injustice that's happening within the temple. The temple is controlled and managed by a group of Jewish religious leaders known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, are entrusted with managing the temple in a way that is just, but they're not. There is recorded evidence that the Sanhedrin were responsible for overseeing all of the merchants that traded in the temple. They charged and gave permission to charge exorbitant exchange rates, and they charged exorbitant prices for all of the animals that people would need to purchase to offer their sacrifices. And in particular, the people who bore the brunt of these exorbitant exchange rates and these exorbitant prices to purchase animals to sacrifice to fulfill their religious duty, the group of people who bore the brunt of that more than any other group are the poor. Throughout the gospel, We've seen Jesus advocate and care for the poor. We've seen him provide food for people who are hungry. He teaches that people with resource should be willing to use their resource and give to the poor. Jesus cares for the poor. He draws near to the poor. He identifies with the poor, and he even teaches that the poor will be the ones who inherit the kingdom because they, at their core, know better than others how to depend exclusively on God to provide for them. And so the temple is supposed to exist as an institution that lifts up the poor, provides for their needs, and makes it easy for them to fulfill their religious obligations. Instead, the Sanhedrin are using the temple to create, uphold, and perpetuate unjust systems that exploit the poor and take advantage of them. They're robbing the poor of what little they have, And doing it in the name of God. So the temple is intended to be a place of justice. A place where the poor can come and participate without fear of exploitation. But instead of being a house of justice, Mark describes it as a house of injustice. Jesus' actions then can be interpreted as a direct attack on the temple system. And it's exploitation of the poor. The second part of these verses. Jesus' actions and then his words. Jesus teaches the crowds who the temple is supposed to be for. By quoting two Old Testament prophets. Mark writes this in verse 17. And as he, Jesus, taught them. He said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it. A den of robbers. The first half of that is a quotation from Isaiah. The second half is a quotation from Jeremiah. The Isaiah quote is taken from Isaiah 56. That's where Jesus gets the language, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There, Isaiah records God's words about who God will gather into his holy community. And in Isaiah 56, God specifically identifies foreigners and eunuchs as people that he will include in his holy family. The implication of God's words spoken through Isaiah is that God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, are becoming increasingly fixated on enforcing sexual and racial purity within their country. And that in their increasing fixation on sexual and racial purity, they're demonizing and then excluding entire groups of people that God wants to include. They're pushing away people that God wants to gather. And they're rejecting people that God wants to make family. The Hebrew word used for foreigner literally means son of a foreign land. And in the Old Testament, and this is literally you'll see in a moment a word that I never thought I would put on a side screen, eunuchs are castrated males who work in a palace. It's worth saying here that Isaiah is specifically confronting the Israelites for excluding sons of a foreign land and these sexual outsiders from God's family. And I think it's worth saying that in our modern American context, I think the best parallels for these two groups of people are likely immigrants and LGBTQ people. In Isaiah 56.5, God says this to the eunuchs, to the people that Israel considered sexual outsiders who could not participate in Jewish religious life. God says this to them, to them, the eunuchs, I will give within my temple, within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. God will give to the sexual outsider who comes to him wanting to know him. A memorial within his temple. And an everlasting name better than sons and daughters. And then in Isaiah 56, 7, God says this to the foreigners, to the immigrants, to the sons of a foreign land, these I will bring to my holy mountain, which is language meaning the temple, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. God will gather the immigrant within his temple and he will accept their sacrifices. The temple that Jesus walks into, the temple where Jesus drives people out and overturns tables, is supposed to be a place of radical inclusion, not systematic exclusion. God's temple is supposed to be a place of joy For all who are dispossessed. And then there's the Jeremiah quote. Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7 when he says, You have made it a den of robbers. There, in Jeremiah 7, the prophet records God's words about how God's people must reform their ways in order to be worthy of entering his temple. And there, God specifically states that in order to be worthy to enter his temple, God's people, the Israelites, must care well and pursue justice for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. It's a prerequisite for being worthy of entering the temple. It's right there in Jeremiah 7, verses 5 through 7. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, then I will let you live in this place. The implication of God's words through Jeremiah is that God's people, the Israelites, are oppressing immigrants and neglecting their duty to care for the fatherless and widows in their communities. And that if they don't change their ways, if they don't stop exploiting vulnerable people, God will, through, he says this through the prophet Jeremiah, destroy the temple. The temple that Jesus walks into, there's going to be a story that we're going to get to in a few weeks, where this destitute widow, Jesus and his disciples are watching, as this destitute widow takes her last coin, her last bit of money, and throws it into the temple treasury. She pays her temple tax. That story often gets taught in churches as this is a person, like that's the picture of generosity. What we miss is that that is a picture of, of wild injustice. There should not be a destitute widow giving away her last coin in a temple that literally at the time served as a vault for Jewish people who were spread all across the Roman Empire believing that the temple was the most safe and secure location in all the world because it was God's house they would literally send their treasure to the temple like a bank so that the Sanhedrin could protect it for them. Temple taxes are being paid by people all throughout the region. I picture it almost like, and it's described this way, but it's, I almost picture it like you see in movies where like, I don't know, Nicolas Cage and national treasure. Right, what's a sermon without Nicolas Cage in it? And they walk into this room and there's just like gold everywhere. That's the depiction of the temple. That it's overflowing with resource. And yet it's all being held. Historians actually indicate that The Sanhedrin never meaningfully developed a way of distributing that wealth back to the poor. And so because they just kept getting more, they actually used it to buy themselves more opulent things. All the while, the poor are coming to the temple and being charged exorbitant exchange rates. And being sold overpriced doves so that they can make their sacrifices. Jesus' condemnation, therefore, is appropriate. The temple is supposed to be the place where the poor, the sexual outsider, the immigrant, the orphan, the fatherless, and the widow are welcomed as family. It's supposed to be the most just place in all of Israel, and instead it's a den of robbers, a place where the most vulnerable people in Jewish society are oppressed and exploited systematically. The temple is supposed to be the physical interpretation of a healthy fig tree, a place of peace, security, and prosperity for all people, for all people. The temple, like a healthy fig tree, is supposed to produce good and abundant fruit that blesses all people. And yet, the temple that Jesus enters is corrupt. It's withered and dying, unable to produce fruit. I think it's also worth saying this. Jesus doesn't seem interested in trying to reform this broken system. He does not seem interested in joining into it and using his influence and power as the Son of God as a reforming instrument within that institution. He isn't hoping... That by driving a few people out of the temple courts and overturning a few tables, that he'll somehow improve the temple system. Or that through these actions, these leaders of the temple are all of a sudden going to realize the depth of their sin and injustice and repent and seek renewal. It seems that Jesus believes the temple and the religious system it represents are beyond saving. That's why he drives people out. That's why he overturns tables. Jesus is signaling. That the temple is no longer central to following God. That the temple is no longer the center of religious, political, and economic life for God's people. That it isn't the place where God will gather people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That it isn't the place where the immigrant, sexual outsider, widow, or fatherless will find justice, care, or wholeness. The new temple is Jesus. The center of life for God's people is Jesus. And the place God gathers his family is the cross. Now, what does all of this mean for us? How are we supposed to fit this story into our lives? And if it's okay with you, because this is our one-year anniversary... I want to focus this part of our conversation on what I think this story might be saying to us as a community. What this story might be saying to us as a collective people and a church. I'd like to focus on that rather than focusing on what it might mean for us individually. I think you'll be able to pick up on those things, but I'd like to talk about it from a communal perspective. First, we must be a community that is radically inclusive. We must be oriented towards one another, our neighbors, and our community in this way. Every person is welcome. Every person is welcome. And not just welcomed, but invited into our family. Given a seat at the table. No matter who they are, where they're from, what they've done, what they look like, or who they love. They are invited in and given a seat at the table. From the day we started Garden City, we've held inclusivity as a value. I've shared with you before that that value has actually caused people to choose not to support us as a church. The way that we talk about this is we say nothing qualifies nor disqualifies us from being loved by Jesus. Every person can belong and is worthy of being known and loved exactly as they are, regardless of ethnicity, gender, sexuality, or ability, Jesus tears down every wall. He turns over every table that separates us from him and one another. Jesus knows that it's when we are in relationship with him that we experience life change. And so he will stop at nothing to invite people into relationship with himself. At Garden City, every person is welcome, every person has a place. And we'll be invited into our family because God wants his kids to come home. The time before our worship gathering starts, the community time, the seven minutes, right, that time. And the time after our gathering finishes, I think those are vital to the health of our community. Our community is healthiest when during community time, I have to ask you multiple times to just stop talking to each other. Like For me, that is a signal of like health and vitality, that we know each other, that we're in relationship with each other, that we care about each other. Those moments when we haven't seen each other for a few weeks and we excitedly move towards each other, or those weeks where there's someone who's here for the very first time and we as a community are noticing that they're here for the very first time and moving towards them and engaging them in conversation. It's a sign of health and vitality. So first, I think, like the temple was intended to be, the church should be a place of radical inclusivity. Second thing, we must be a community that lifts each other up, that meets each other's needs, and works to help each person find wholeness in Jesus. And in particular, if we take Jesus' cue from this passage, we must work to care for our vulnerable neighbors. We must work to care for our vulnerable neighbors. For those of us who are vulnerable. Jesus saw the temple as an institution that was intended to use its resource to care for the poor. I think that's what the church is supposed to do today. That's why at Garden City you'll never see an expensive audio system. You'll never see an expensive lighting system. In fact, um, and this is a fun story for me, um, Pastor Shaq and I, a few months ago, were at a gathering with a few of the leaders of Garden City, and the person who was facilitating that meeting asked this group, like, what's a deal breaker for you about Garden City? Like, if this were to happen, if you were to see this thing, what would be a deal breaker for you that you would be like, that's it, I'm out? And I loved that there was one person whose answer was a fog machine. That if they saw a fog machine, that would be the thing. We want to use the resource that's been entrusted to us to be generous and to meet each other's needs. We think this means being generous with our neighbors. Generosity has been one of our values from the very beginning. And I don't think we've done a good job of communicating this. So I'm going to do this right now so that we... No, so that you know. This year alone, we've given away $43,000. That's 17% of all the money that's been given to us as a church. Almost 20% has left the church. We contributed almost $3,000 to Allegheny Traditional Academy's performance of Peter Pan, supporting over 100 students and their families. When one of their strategic partners pulled out and couldn't meet their financial obligation, we stepped in. We supported a neighbor and their children who needed to leave a years-long abusive relationship by covering groceries and rent for three months. We supported Pastor Shaq and his family when they lost his brother. We supported the Perry High School girls and boys basketball teams. We gave almost $1,000 to the Perry High School boys and girls varsity basketball teams. We contributed almost $2,000 to the Brighton Heights Citizens Federation because during the pandemic, they had lost funding for what they had called their porch parties, which were 15 to 20 Fridays in a row throughout the summer where people would just gather, neighbors would gather together, and they lost their funding for it. And so we stepped in and provided that funding for them and hundreds of neighbors from across Brighton Heights got to meet. There were moments um, Mitch helped kind of make this connection for us. There were moments when we would be like deliver like like making sure people had the resource they needed to host these like parties, where people literally would be like, "This is from a church." because we believe that Jesus wants neighbors to gather. We believe that communities that thrive or communities that are in relationship. Um, We helped a neighbor pay for for one month of rent after they unexpectedly lost their job, and this month we're partnering with a company called New Look Home Exteriors and contributing $15,000 to help a neighbor put a roof on their house. A neighbor that has a giant hole in their roof. Something that's so neat to me, I mentioned New Look Home Exteriors because I'm really thankful for them. Um, I brought this project to them and just asked if there was a way that they could basically take on a project and make no money. Like, could you just do this and maybe only make 1% or 2% instead of, like, whatever your normal thing is. And they came back and said, um, not only would they not charge, like, not only would they not make a profit on it, But they applied to the total project about 25% of total discounts, and then they themselves contributed about $10,000. That they were so thankful to be invited into the project and work. 17% of total funds donated to Garden City this year have gone back out into the community. We're able to be generous like this because of your generosity with the church. It's also something so that you know, we always wanna be transparent with our resources at any point in time, we will sit down with you and show you every last detail of our books. Even that time I was on vacation and used the Garden City debit card because it looks just like my Visa card. (laughs) To buy a cup of coffee for myself and my wife. And then when I realized I had done it, guys, I called our accountant while I was on vacation. I do. She told me to just write a check. (laughs) So, church, this story in Mark 11, it points us towards these two realities. That we must be a radically inclusive community and we must be a community that's marked by a wild kind of generosity especially with our vulnerable neighbors. Because God wants his kids to come home. Every last one. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that we can be together as a family, that we can have this moment to commemorate our one year, but, Father, also to be reminded of who you are and who we are supposed to be individually and as a community in light of who you are. Father, would you change our hearts so that you would change our actions that we might be your people everywhere that we go. Father, plant this story your truths into our hearts to change our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to receive communion now, and Carrie Buckner is going to lead us in that moment.